the musical review Pins and Needles was first presented by the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union at the labor stage in New York City, featuring a cast of workers from the ILGWU who rehearsed after completing their day's job in the garment shops along 7th Avenue. The show opened in November of 1937 and ran for nearly four years. That's good news since Lord knows when For the strike is over, boys, back to work again The fighting's through now, there's no more fuss For the strike is over, boys, back to work for us We gave a little and we took a little It was quite a fight, but things came out all right Shout to the rafters let yourselves go for the striking all is done let's have fun the day is one back to work we go ken walensky tells us in the collection chorus and community the popularity of the troupe and pins and needles grew quickly as it received accolades from the labor movement and the new york theater community two traveling companies ensued Hollywood performances were booked. One company was invited to give the review in the East Room of the White House for President Roosevelt and selected federal officials. Bolstered by favorable reviews and a high-profile performance in the nation's capital, by the early 1940s, Pins and Needles had become the longest-running Broadway musical up to its time. It had successfully launched the ILGWU's long-term commitment to entertainment to espouse the causes of working people and the labor movement. Min and Bill Matheson, organizers here in northeastern Pennsylvania, believed it was important to engage Wyoming Valley workers in cultural and artistic aspects that had become a hallmark of the ILGWU, they also recognized the relevance of providing social outlets to boost esprit de corps, encourage mutual association, and promote a positive and creative union image. Min and Bill recruited local residents Jim Corbett, Bill Gable, and Clementine Lyons to help organize their version of the New York troupe. In the coming years, the Wyoming Valley Chorus, referred to interchangeably as the Northeast Department Chorus, would be recognized as the preeminent ILGWU performing group. The story of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union here in northeastern Pennsylvania isn't just about singing and dancing to build community and to benefit the community, though that was certainly an important aspect of the union's presence and one that had a great impact though the chorus might symbolize what the Mathesons and the ILGWU did here. 
they gave these women, mostly women, a voice. There were strikes, there were confrontations with organized crime, and Robert Walensky sets the stage for the dramatic history. It is the original players who tell this tale in sewn-in-coal country, an oral history of the ladies' garment industry in northeastern Pennsylvania. This volume is one that talks about the area's apparel industry, and again, it's told through the voices of men and women who lived it, drawing from an archive of over 60 audio-recorded interviews within the Northeastern Pennsylvania Oral and Life History Collection, sewn in coal, showcases 16 stories told by workers, shop owners, union leaders, and others, and it's been issued recently by Penn State University Press. Dr. Robert Walensky is Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point and Adjunct Professor of History at King's College in Wilkes-Barre. He is the co-author of Fighting for the Union Label, The Women's Garment Industry and the ILGWU in Pennsylvania, also published by Penn State University Press, and many other books about the history of Northeastern Pennsylvania. We had a chance to speak by phone with Dr. Walensky about these voices and their story. There was a confluence of a handful of factors that brought the garment industry to Northeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, a couple main factors. You know, we have a, an infrastructure in the area of women working in silk mills, in knitting factories. We're making men's garments, you know, miners' overalls, miners' caps. And, and furthermore, in the 1930s, part of the New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal efforts, was to train women to sew garments and maybe in anticipation of there being a garment factory. But the big issue was that the garment shops that were in New York City, the, the garment capital of this nation and maybe the world at the time, in the famous garment center in, in Manhattan, had been fully organized by the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union by the 1930s. Big contract settlement in 1933, which gave the workers, and there were tens of thousands of them, mainly women, but not only women. For example, cutters were usually men, pressers were usually men, but the sewers were almost invariably women. But the 33 contract gave them, the workers, better wages and better benefits. And so the, the garment shops, most of which were small, relatively small, under 100, under 200 employees, began looking around the metropolitan area of New York, immediate metropolitan area, pulling out of the garment center and trying to work non-union. Well, the ILGWU caught up with them real quick. So by, by the mid-30s, they began looking further afield, the garment shop owners did. And they began going to the so-called hinterland uh, of New Jersey, of New York, New England, and, of course, of Pennsylvania. And in Pennsylvania, in the, in the eastern, northeastern part of the state, the mining industry was beginning to collapse in the 30s. It began to collapse after the big strike of 1925-26. Then, of course, 1929 stock market crash. So we were in dire straits by the early 30s, mid-30s, and the garment shops in New York started to come into our area. They were called, euphemistically, they were called runaway shops. 
They were running away from the city and running away from the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. And um, David Dubinsky, the president of the ILGWU after 1933, recognized this, and so did the other officers in one of the largest unions in the country, powerful union. And don't forget, by the early 1930s, this union was allied with Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal because they helped get him elected our most pro-union president up to that point in history and probably in our entire history, certainly one of them. David Dubinsky decided that we ought to start organizing these runaway garment shops in Easton and Sayre and Scranton and Wilkesboro. And as the shops came in by the hundreds, he sent organizers. And uh, that's what my book is about, the organizing, I mean, the entire growth of the industry in our area with a special focus on on organizing the shops by the ILGWU. What about the conditions in these places, Bob? Were they dangerous to work in? Were they like sweatshops that we would think of in maybe New York? Yes, early on in the early 30s, they certainly were sweatshop-like. We have oral histories. I mean, my book, Sewn in Coal Country, Um, we have oral histories in there. It's based on 16 oral histories. That, that I and my brother Ken conducted, Ken Walensky from Harrisburg. Women talk about the early days being very much like sweatshops, very low pay, boss looking over your shoulder, long hours, um, very long initial test periods, a couple weeks, three weeks, four weeks, test periods where you're getting either no pay or very little pay. Now, There were some very good shop owners, and we have all this testimony about the folks who really cared about the women. But the early days, it was low pay and long hours and and lots of control, six-day weeks, 10-hour days, very common, really, in a lot of industries, steel, for example, 12-hour days at that time in the 30s. But but the, the New Deal changes a lot of that. And, of course, the ILGWU comes into Northeastern Pennsylvania, with the leadership of Min and Bill Matheson, they make it their their task to improve the working conditions, whether it be wages or bathrooms, very inadequate bathrooms in a lot of shops. Now, that was one of Min's concerns. Uh, they were drafty, they were cold, or they weren't heated. Uh, they were really hot in the summer. So, so all those working conditions drastically improved into the early 50s, and then into the 60s. Bob, the history of labor strife is something that you have helped us understand over the life of the anthracite industry in the area. Was that background, that sense of the struggle between capital and labor, did that help the struggle with the Garment Workers Union? Were the women ready to be organized because of what they'd experienced in their family lives? Did it help in that way? Very much so. Very much so, Erica. Uh, One of the interview subjects is Betty Greenberg, who lives in Kingston right now. That's the Matheson's daughter, Min and Bill Matheson, the labor leaders in this episode for the ILGWU. Betty gave a quote in her chapter. Each garment worker gets his or her own chapter. That he says, yeah, this was a union valley. Maybe not among, you know, the upper element, but among the working people, middle class, working class people, 
they supported unions, and they supported unions because of the mine workers. We had in the District 1 of the United Mine Workers Union, that's the northern coal field, basically Lackawanna and Luzerne County, we had about, in the 1930s, 65,000 mine workers. And it was a closed shop system, so they virtually all had to belong, had to belong to the United Mine Workers of America under the leadership of John L. Lewis. And uh, then you had textile mills, which were unionized early on. The silk mills were unionized early on. And that wasn't unique to the, to the Wyoming Valley. It was, was really all over the country that these industries were unionized. So the women and the men who formed the ILGWU in the area, I mean, they drew from a deep well, a deep well of union commitment and union fervor. And, of course, we saw that, we saw that fairly recently again at the Citizens' Voice. So there are a lot of examples of, of the area being union-friendly, but it really begins and is made, it is strengthened by the, the mine workers. And, Bob, you have told us so compellingly in the past about Min Matheson. Can you introduce us to her and how she and Bill came to the area and what the difference was that their presence has made here? Yes. Well, you know, the book is mostly garment workers who were in men's administration, shall we call it. They were, they were union organizers. They were union officials who, who, who helped her administer things, you know, business agents. Min was the, the director of the district. This was the Wyoming Valley District, and she was the, the executive director of the district. Her husband, Bill, was the educational director, but they were a team. They did things together. A lot of folks said that Bill made the snowballs and men threw them. Bill was a speechwriter. He was a strategist. He was a, he was a writer of jingles for the ILGWU chorus. He was in the background for press releases. But Min was out front. Min was born in Chicago of Jewish immigrant parents. Bill was born in Canada of good Scots Presbyterian parents. They met in Chicago. They fell in love. She was, I guess, about eight or nine years younger than he. And uh, it took her a while to convince him that he, he should love her. <laughs> but she persisted. And, and they, were a great, they were a great team. They worked in New, in New York for a while in the garment industry. She worked in Patterson, New Jersey, as an organizer during the Patterson Silk Strike. And I want to add that they both belong early to the Communist Party of America, which was very, very common back at the turn of the century for a lot of garment workers and silk workers and uh, certain other industry workers, coal mine workers, to belong to the Communist or the Socialist Party. By the 1920s, that attraction began to fade away when people saw what was going on in the Soviet Union after the Russian Revolution of 1916. And uh, it was pretty much seen as a, as a dictatorship. The promises were not, were not there. And so a lot of garment workers and, and other radicals left the Communist Party, big split in the ILGWU, which at the time was mainly Jewish workers and Italian workers. And the Jews were very very much interested in socialism and communism. And the Italians were interested in the same thing, immigrants, and also um, anarchism. Not all, but, I mean, large currents. But by the mid-20s and late-30s, the communist allure was over, 
And then when Franklin Roosevelt's elected in 1932, they virtually all become New Deal Democrats because Roosevelt's New Deal was very supportive of the working class. The Wagner Act of 1935, sponsored by Senator Robert Wagner of New York, allowed workers to, to join unions. In fact, the government would, would protect your union vote. You could not get fired for union organizing. And it was a major breakthrough. So the Mathesons became huge Democrats. And in the Valley, over the next decade, they supported people like Dan Flood and the entire ILGWU. Dan Flood, the long-term congressman from the area, would often trumpet Min and her girls. Min and her girls. Uh, in fact, everybody used the term girls back then, even men. He owed so much to them. But anyways, uh, Ben and Bill come to the area from Sayre in 1945, come out of New York, go to Sayre, organize runaways, then come to the Valley in 45. And when they get there, there are 600, 800 unionized workers in a half a dozen shops. The union had done some organizing there, the ILGWU. Six shops, maybe 800 workers. By the time she leaves in 1962, 63— there are 168 unionized shops and about 11,000, 12,000 unionized garment workers. That was from 45, not even 20 years. Bob, did you get a sense in talking with the interviewees and from the work you've done in this area that the self-esteem and that the women having these jobs and having a better sense as the days went by of having health care and so forth, do you think it did anything in terms of the women's overall way of being in the world? Very much, Erica. Very much. Uh, uh, Min says this in her oral history, which is chapter three in the book. You know, we gave them status. Uh, I make the argument from a, from a historian's point of view that it was not just status, but men gave the women a, a public face. They were somebody in the community because the ILGWU were involved with United Way, United Fund. They were big contributors to that. They supported candidates from Governor Leader to President Johnson to Dan Flood, as I've mentioned, to local candidates. When the ILGWU had their, their banquets, they'd have annual banquets, Republicans and Democrats would come, officials, judges, elected officials, appointed officials, mayors, they would all come. They would come part because they supported the union, but in part because how many votes did the ILGWU represent? You had 11,000, 12,000 union members who were in families of how many? You know, in the Valley, we tend to have large families, especially back then. You might have five or six in a family. You're talking about a lot of votes. You're talking about a lot of clout. And if you were a Republican and men and build, if you were a pro-labor fellow, they wouldn't be afraid to vote for you. They would not be afraid to vote for you. Some towns like Kingston, which were famous for electing Republicans, they would get the support of the ILGWU. But at the same time, they expected that person to support, you know, labor legislation and, and, and other maybe social legislation, uh, might be Medicare, which labor, which labor backed. 
So, yeah, and, and speaking, I mean, Bill was a stickler, Bill Matheson, about teaching the women to speak properly. He was, you know, no, no D's and D's. Even men early on had a New York accent, and, and he worked with her. Betty Greenberg talks about that, about how her father, Bill, really wanted the women to, to speak properly. And they encouraged many of the union members to run for school boards and, and to participate in the PTA. And to do that, you had to have a public face. You had to be able to articulate your viewpoint. And so the union, aside from bringing home the bacon, gave, gave the members a, a great deal of, of uplift and, as Min says, status. But the other side of the coin was it wasn't easy for the men. It was not easy for the husbands, and the great majority were married, who had lost his job in the coal mines and maybe now picked up a job at an at a nursery or on a farm or, or maybe tending bar for a minimum wage to have a wife who has a, a very good secure job with a pension and health care, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it wasn't always easy. And by the way, let me add a quick footnote here. The women who worked in the garment shops, and again, it was overwhelmingly women, they had what was called the second shift. There's a literature on women's work and one of the terms is second shift. They had to come home and do their women's work with the kids and the meals and the washing and the cleaning and work a shift in the garment factory. So they had like double shifts. So there was, there was tension. There was tension. But uh, I guess on balance, the husbands appreciated the wives being able to bring home income because a lot of the mines in the 50s, including the one where my father worked at the Harry E. in Swerville, two, three days a week. That was it, two, three days a week. And that's all you made. Your book has some terrific photos, Bob. When we talk about these women, we get to see them in these wonderful photos. Yes. Well, I, I really want to thank Penn State University Press, who published our first book on the garment workers back in 2002. That was by my brother, Ken Walensky, my daughter, who was then Nicole Walensky. Penn State Press has published both of our garment worker books. With this one, we negotiated over 80 photographs. I mean, I had a couple hundred. I have a couple hundred. But a lot of them from Cornell University. Cornell University's library is the repository of the ILGWU papers, the official documents of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union and the industry in general. And I uh, spent time up there doing research, of course, and also garnering photographs. And so that was an important source of photographs. But perhaps the most important source of photographs came from Billy Lukasik. And Billy Lukasik up in DuPont is the person at Lukasik Studios. To this day, his father and his uncle, Steve, his father Bill, were the official photographers for the ILGWU. So on the cover, we have we have six women on strike at the Alimo, the Dominic Alimo Dress Factory in Pittston. That's the top photograph. And uh, Steve Lukasik took that picture. And and Billy Lukasik up there has a million photographs. I mean, it may be really literally a million photographs and negatives from his father and his uncle. And, and uh, it's just a treasure trove of, of local photographs from coal mines. But they were the official photographers from the ILG. And uh, Billy graciously allowed me to use 
oh, I have about 20 to 30 photographs in this book, including the one on the cover. And for that, I am, I'm very grateful. And I got photographs from Getty Images, and I got some, you know, from the Times Leader and the Citizen's Voice and the Scranton Tribune and local newspapers. They were also very gracious. But Penn State University Press doesn't usually put over 80 photographs, it gets 85 in their books. But since we had the treasure trove and since they definitely add to the story, they agree. And so one of the benefits of the book is that, you know, you can probably spend every, every chapter has at least two photographs. And in the middle, we have the gallery with a couple dozen photographs. If sometimes you don't feel like reading, you can look at the photographs. Bob, you take us in the book up to 1995. Talk to us about what happened between those early years and 95. You know, I've mentioned in some of my talks that northeastern Pennsylvania has had a lot of booms and busts. I mentioned the silk industry early, coming out of Patterson, New Jersey, and then going south and then going overseas. And, you know, we used to make cigars in northeastern Pennsylvania, and we made shoes, and we lost a lot of industry. I mean, there was heavy manufacturing at the Hazard, for example. We used to make locomotives and big coal stoves, and we, we made a lot of mining equipment, chains chain and cables. So we've gone through a lot of what's called de-industrialization. We're not the only area, of course, the so-called Rust Belt has, has done this and been doing this and still doing this. And so the garment industry became de-industrialized beginning in the 70s. Imports start coming in. At first, the imports were taxed. There were tariffs on them. But in my last chapter, I kind of summarize and analyze. I just state the facts about the garment industry being one of the ones sacrificed at the altar of American geopolitical policies. We needed to, in the, in the Cold War now, we needed to cement things with our allies. We needed to give our allies and our potential allies economic development. Uh, and so, so as they wouldn't go over to the Soviet bloc. And one of the easiest ways to guarantee our allies economic development was to let the garment industry go overseas. I mean, the owners, the big garment shop owners from Leslie Fay, I mean, some of the really big ones, that was the biggest one in the Valley, but there were big ones in the country. Joined with the ILGWU and the men's union, we had a men's union, the, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers Union, they had a shop in Swerville where my own mother worked, the Grasso's Men's Pants Factory right off Shoemaker Street. Uh, I think the building's still there. And, and that's where you made, you know, miners' overalls at one time, for example. The unions joined with the companies to fight the imports in the Congress of the United States and in the states. I mean, the state of Pennsylvania was on board with this, the state of New York. But the battle was lost. Because foreign policy, Democrats and Republicans in Washington, you, you know, we, we want to keep Mexico. We want to keep Taiwan. We, we want to keep the Philippines. We want to keep, eventually, uh, get more influence over China, who now has emerged as, as you know, one of, our, one of our adversaries to superpowers. But we, we wanted early on to bring China along and get them into our, and reasonably into our camp, uh, give them things to make. And garment was a piece of cake. You know, you just need some sewing machines, you train your workers. And there went the garment industry 
except for, you know, some very high-end things. We were making wedding dresses in the Valley through the 70s into the 80s, you know, they're very handmade, very fancy wedding dresses. Uh, I don't know if there are any garment shops in the Valley nowadays. There may be a couple. So um, once one of the world's largest garment makers today is just a shadow of itself, and, uh, and um, that's, true of, that's true of the Wyoming Valley. We lost, we lost one of our major employers by 1995. It was, that was when Leslie Fay. Leslie Fay employed over 2,000 in its factory locally, and it had six small factories. Leslie Fay had so much work, it would farm stuff out to its six small factories, mainly in Pittston, Duryea, and that area, Exeter on the, on the west side. The main plant had over 2,000, but they had six smaller plants with maybe 100 each. Gone. Gone. Look for the union label When you are buying a coat, dress, or blouse Remember somewhere our union sewing, our wages going to feed the kids and run the house we Robert P. Walensky, Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, and Adjunct Professor of History at King's College in Wilkes-Barre. He is co-author of Fighting for the Union Label, The Women's Garment Industry, and the ILGWU in Pennsylvania, published by Penn State University Press and many other books about the history of Northeastern Pennsylvania. Dr. Walensky spoke with us today about Sewn in Coal Country, an oral history of the ladies' garment industry in Northeastern Pennsylvania, 1945 through 1995, issued by Penn State University Press. For more information on Sewn in Coal Country, an oral history of the ladies' garment industry in northeastern Pennsylvania, 1945 through 1995, psupress.org, psupress.org. We spoke with Dr. Walensky when the book was issued, and we brought the conversation back because it's Labor Day today, and because the Greater Pittston Historical Society will host a presentation on the local apparel industry, and it will be given by Dr. Robert Walensky. The talk is titled Min Matheson, Russell Buffalino, and Other Participants in the Wyoming Valley's Ladies' Garment Industry, 1945 through 1995. The event will take place this Thursday, September 9th, and we'll get underway at 7 o'clock. It will take place in person at the Pittston Memorial Library, 47 Broad Street in Pittston, and admission is free. The presentation will be based on Dr. Walensky's book that we just heard about, Sewn in Coal Country, and that is a talk that will include video clips, audio clips of the oral histories Dr. Walensky conducted to create the book, and a question-and-answer session will be included. You're invited to attend at no charge. Light refreshments will be provided. That's Thursday, September 9th at 7, for free, at Pittston Memorial Library, 47 Broad Street in Pittston, and it will be a talk by Dr. Robert Wolensky, our guest today on Art Scene. <laughs>